Welcome to another episode of Locked in Science. Well, once again, the three of us, Claire, Stu and Chris, we're locked in our home still. We're not quite locked in, but we are remotely recording as we have been for, oh, it seems like, it seems like forever now, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, when was there even a time when we we were face-to-face recording? I can't remember this time. It was summer. <laughs> It was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a very different time. Anyway, but this doesn't stop us doing some excellent science reporting for you folks out there. And we have a couple of great stories for you this week. Stu, what have you got going on? Well, you know, uh, speaking of time flying, it's nearly halfway through the year. And it is the year of the International Year of Plant Health. So I'm doing a bit of a story on some some plant health research that's been going on um, in Europe um, about one of the, probably one of the most important vegetable crop families in in the entire world. Everyone eats these or avoids eating them everywhere you go in the world. <laughs> that, is, that is a large sample set. An yeah, interesting yeah. Venn diagram there. Um, it's one of those things people either love them or they hate them, but it's the brassica family. So I'll... I'll be doing a bit of a look at uh, brassicas and what are brassicas and how do brassicas protect themselves because we grow a lot of them but they're actually pretty good at looking after themselves as well yeah pretty much all vegetables are either brassicas or deadly nightshades except for the carrot family which you've <laughs> skillfully neglected to mention there Oh, well. Oh, Chris, Next why time. don't you have to argue with the horticulture scientist? We're only halfway through the year of plant health. I'm sure we'll get around to the carrots eventually. At some point, we definitely will touch on the carrots. Yes. Claire, what have you got for us? Well, Chris, um, this week I got the test, so to speak. I got the COVID-19 test. You got the, the brain swab. <laughs> I got the brain swab. It felt like a brain swab. Um, so I'm here to talk you through the brain swab and what what it felt like and why you shouldn't be too worried about it. And also um, talk a little bit about um, something that I've heard a lot of bandied around a bit, this whole idea of super spreaders. So we're going to talk a little bit about super spreading as well. Are they the, um, the people on the tram who sit on the seats with their, their legs wide apart? <laughs> once once they were they, they are the OG super spreaders yeah. and now super spreaders mean something different it means uh you know people who give uh covid-19 to more more people than they really should excellent well sounds like a great yeah. thing for everyone to listen to what is also a great thing for people to listen to is the weekly lost in science which is of course on the radio station 3CR and We are still in June. We are still doing 3CR's Station Appeal. This is in lieu of the annual Radiothon where we ask people to support the station and keep community radio on the air. So, yeah, we are asking for your support. Now, we know it's tough times at the moment. There is this global pandemic going on and some people are doing it tough. So if you can't afford to donate, then we understand. But if you can afford... We would really appreciate you keeping us broadcasting. Uh, you can to donate. You can go to 3cr.org.au. 
there's a prominent button. You'll figure it out that you can donate or you can call the station and make some alternative arrangements because let's face it, we are desperate for money and we will do whatever we can to get it out of you. Um, that being said, like I said, very considerate is where we're coming from. As Let me just repeat that. <laughs> anyway, on with the show. So we have mentioned that this year is the International Year of Plant Health and it was intended to celebrate and promote all the work that science does to keep plants healthy. And obviously we rely on plants for all of our food pretty much. Uh, Regardless of your dietary choices, there's not really many options where you're not at some level relying on plants to uh, to fill you up. Uh, and so keeping plants healthy and productive is basically a full-time job for a lot of people in the world. But plants themselves actually do a lot of work in keeping themselves healthy without any human help. Uh, and their evolution has been a constant battle against other organisms who also want to eat them. Um, And, you know, obviously plants have been around a lot longer than people have, so they've obviously got some tricks up their leaves, I guess would be the way to put it. Um, Now, one of the most useful plant families that humans grow is the Brassica family. Now, Chris, can you name any plants in the Brassica family off the top of your head? Are Brassicas things like cabbages and broccoli and cauliflower and that kind of stuff. That is exactly right. So the Brassicaceae family, which is the official botanical name, uh, there is one particular plant called Brassica oleracea. That's the binomial name for it. Um, It's possibly one of the most important plant species, certainly one of the most important vegetable species. It has hundreds of varieties this one species of plant all of the cabbages all of the broccoli cauliflower kale brussels sprouts kohlrabi are all the same species of brassica brassica oleracea same species yeah same species like i knew i would i would have guessed they were related but i didn't know they were that closely related that's incredible yeah that, that is pretty amazing they basically took this um Hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago possibly, they took this wild species called Brassica oleracea and they bred it into being all of these different things. And kind of depending where they took it in the world is is how they came up with, you know, different um, varieties. So, yeah, the, the cabbages, the broccoli, the cauliflower, they're all the one species of Brassica. Now, the family's obviously much bigger than this and it includes a lot of other plants we eat including a lot of greens. So all of the, um, there's, you know, there's Chinese cabbage, what we call Chinese cabbage, and a whole lot of other um, Asian greens, which are also in the Brassica family. There's also turnips and swedes are in the Brassica family. What? Radishes, rocket, mustard, and even canola is in the same family. No way. Yeah. So what about, hang on, what about, Spinach is that one of the oh, spinach is a different family, but oh. um, the, these these brassicas are, are 
huge part of our vegetable intake for most people and also condiments and cooking oil and all sorts of different stuff we use them for. So one of the reasons we probably do grow so many plants in this family is that they're relatively um, pest and disease free. There, there are exceptions, obviously. They're not, they're not indestructible, but they are very easy to grow and they're also very productive. Um, they get the occasional virus, they get a couple of bacterial infections, and there's a particular white butterfly uh, which will strip them down to uh, leaf skeletons in no time at all, the little green caterpillars that you will get if you ever try and grow any of these cabbages. They will appear oh. out of nowhere. This little, that little white cabbage, is it called the cabbage butterfly or the cabbage moth or something like that? Ca- cabbage white butterfly is, is probably the most accurate name. It's Pyrus rapé, and the rapé comes from the, the, the brassica plant that it was originally was originally the host plant for that butterfly, but it's spread okay. everywhere in the world that we grow the brassica family. Are they just flying around looking for brassicas? Pretty much, yeah. Um, if you if you ever drive past a canola field at the right time of year, you'll see them swarming around those places because um, that's another pest of them as well. Um, but they're pretty resilient. One of the reasons for the brassicas being so resilient is they have their own inbuilt defense mechanism. Um, and this was named by a botanist, Philip Matty, in 1980. He called it the mustard oil bomb. Because basically, it gets triggered when the plant tissue is disturbed. So inside the plant, um, all of the, or a lot of the members of the Brassica family, uh, have this sort of distinctive peppery flavor. If you eat raw cabbage, you get that peppery flavor from the cabbage. Mm-hmm. That is... Well, it's like Rocket in particular has that, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, that is actually a result of this mustard oil that gets produced in the plant. And that is a repellent for a whole lot of pests and even uh, pathogenic diseases as well. Um, And also, you know, it's the same thing that we get in the seeds from mustard, which we turn into mustard that we eat. So it's the same thing. You can actually make mustard out of cabbage seeds or broccoli seeds if you've got any left over in the garden you can pretty much use all of them to make a form of mustard out of the seeds of those um so they they produce this oil but how it works in the plant um and and we actually enjoy eating it it's part of the reason we grow these plants we like that flavor but the pests don't like it it's actually toxic to a lot of, of the pests so the plant um creates this oil it basically produces two different chemicals and stores them in different parts of the leaves in separate compartments so while the plant is just growing happily these chemicals are stored separately in a safe way inside the plant but then along comes some little rabbit or some sort of uh you know herbivorous creature that wants to have a chew on the the cabbage leaf And suddenly the cells all get disrupted in the leaf and these two chemicals are released and they come together and interact with each other and turn into this mustard oil. So you basically don't get the mustard oil until you start damaging the plant. So that's why he called it a bomb. 
It works like Araldite a bit, does it? Yeah, it's got the two the two separate um, components, and when they come together, they change. You know, they chemically react and turn into a new substance. Um, so when the leaf tissue is disrupted, the compartments get broken open. The two chemicals mix together to form this pungent, toxic mustard oil, and it's not particularly toxic to us. We can eat it, and um, you know, you wouldn't want to put it in your eyes or anything like that. Um, Although, you know, if you've ever accidentally tried some English mustard and you thought it was some other kind of mustard, you'll know it can get pretty hot as well. Um, and for smaller animals, it's really bad news. They really don't like it, except obviously our friend, the uh, the cabbage butterfly, who obviously don't care at all about the mustard. They've got some other means of, of dealing with it. Um, but it also seems to have an effect on pathogens, and they generally don't tend to be very successful on brassica crops with some obvious exceptions. So recently, uh, researchers at the Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology have been looking into the success of a particular fungus called Sclerotinia sclerotiorum and how it affects and infects uh, brassica plants. So this particular fungus is unaffected by these mustard oil bombs contained in the leaves and proceeds to infect the plants and cause a fungal disease known as sclerotinia wilt. So the plants get all wilted, they get less productive, the leaves die off, they look awful. It's uh, it's a real problem for for growers of, of the brassica family. Now what they found was that the fungus itself produces its own counter-attack chemicals which bind to the component chemicals of the mustard oil before they get to join together. So the fungus attacks the tissue of the plant, those mustard oil precursors get released, but the fungus produces chemicals that basically bind them up and block them and stop them turning into mustard oil. So it's basically impervious to the mustard oil because it doesn't let the mustard oil form. Um. So the scientists identified the specific genes that allow the mould to make these chemicals and produced mutant strains of the fungus which lacked those genes to make those chemicals and then they found that those mutant strains were unable to successfully invade the brassica plants that they tested them on. So this is just an example of how complex the interaction and the evolution of plants and their pests and diseases and the pathogens that attack the plants can be and it's a constant battle back and forth between the plants trying to avoid being eaten by things or being attacked by fungi and pathogens and the fungi and pathogens finding their own weapons to fight back so they can feed on those plants so this kind of research will hopefully allow plant health scientists to come up with new ways of targeting specific plant pests in the future. So if they can find individual genes, they can target you know, um, treatments for those pathogenic diseases much more suited rather than using broad-spectrum pesticides that can damage uh, helpful organisms. And you know, maybe even develop tools to allow for detection of organisms that will ruin the plants. And I've already come up with a name that I think they could use for... Um, something that will detect an organism that will ruin the plant. You could call them spoiler alerts. Uh, 
Very good, Stu. <laughs> Great. Well, look, it's good to know that, um, you know, if you think that your cabbages and your broccoli are hard to eat now, they're going to get even harder to eat in the future. Possibly. <laughs> if you don't like sprouts now, you're never going to like them. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> Tougher chemicals. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So I uh, got the test last week, guys. Oh. Um, the COVID-19 test, that is. Um, me and my partner, we woke up with what seemed like a bit of a sore throat. Um, and given that the current advice is to get tested, however mild your symptoms are, we thought we'd jump in the car and head over to the nearest drive through There are drive throughs Oh, yeah, not drive through cinemas, not drive through Maccas. Or bottle um, shops. drive through COVID-19 testing facilities. Excellent. How do you find a drive through COVID-19 testing facility? Ah, oh, all of this information is detailed on the Department of Health in your local state. Of course. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, just before I go on, have either of you been tested? No. No. Okay, great. So let me talk you through the process from somebody who now has a little bit more experience but can't really shed that much light on it. Um, This is just my sort of um, uh, selfish explanation and storytelling, all right? Um, so it's 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 quite a well-oiled machine. Everything, you know, you go into the drive-thru, everything is signposted, you head in. Um, in our case, it was to a car park, which was in the open air, but was one of those undercover car parks, which makes a lot of sense considering you want there to be, you know, in an area where there might be the coronavirus, you want there to be a lot of airflow, um, but also protected from the elements. So, you know, your health workers aren't going to get rained on. Yeah, because they've got to be there all day. <laughs> they could be there all day yeah. exactly and these things these places are open from like you know quite early in the morning until 5 p.m at night um anyway so signs are telling you to close your windows so to keep your windows closed until um the health worker tells you otherwise we were greeted by lovely health worker one who took our names our medicare details phone numbers and symptoms um and after that we waited in line wasn't that long maybe four cars um, until, and, and they cycled through them very quickly um, until we got to the front of the line where lovely healthcare worker number two asked us a couple of questions, confirmed our details, um, and then very swiftly got down to business. So they took out a very long, what I would describe as a cotton bud swab type thing, um, asked me to open my mouth and then sort of went straight into the back of my throat um, and... Um, straight, just straight to the gag reflex, let's say, um, and twirled it around there a couple of times. But by the time I realized I was about to throw up, um, it was out again and that part was over, which was great. Um, then the next stage, they took out another cotton bun and extended with an extended, um, sort of buddy part, (laughs) And that one goes straight up the nose um, to a place that sort of feels like it's in like right in the middle of your head. Oh. Like closer to the brain than anything has ever been before. I know you said it, it goes up your nose, but it sort of goes back from your nose, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it 
felt like it was up my nose, but it was only after I saw, I, you know, did some research and looked at, you know, where it actually went. It is much more parallel into your nasal cavity and back, um, back into your, um, nasal pharyngeal sort of space at the back of your nose. How far are we talking roughly, dear? <laughs> oh, um, I would say like kilometers. <laughs> it felt like <laughs> no i mean realistically it's probably only a few centimeters it would probably okay. yeah um but it did feel quite quite like nothing else um there's some twirling that goes around Ooh. up there to get a good clean swipe of potential viruses from the liquids that are secreting out of, um, you know, your nasal pharyngeal part. Um, and then it's all over. I mean, I say, you know, as long as it's taken me to tell this story, it was over a lot sooner than that. So the next thing I noticed um, was that the, nasopharyng- the nasopharyngeal swab, so the one that went, you know, into my brain, um, that brought on a lacrimal reflex. Do you guys know what that is? You started crying. That's right. Also known as tears streaming down my face. And then I look across um, to my partner and, you know, tears are down his face face as well. Um, So that is uh, apparently a sign that um, the health workers have got to the point where they needed to get. (laughs) So basically, they stick a thing in your nose until you cry, is what you're saying. That is correct. Absolutely. Wow, what a job. I know, right? And then that was it. Off we went to self-isolate at home and wait for the results. Um, so I've got to say, it was a relief to be over and I would be lying if I told you it was comfortable. It was actually one of the more awkward things that um, I've done recently. But I guess I've been in isolation for a long time, so I haven't really done that much. Um, but major kudos to the lovely health professionals who made it such a super quick process. Uh, and awesome that my results are negative, which is fantastic. Uh, as I guess the vast majority of people who get this test done, but there have been reports this week of an increase in positive cases in Victoria and government health officials have warned that this um, is linked to um, large family groups getting together and the virus spreading. Well, this got me thinking about a word that's come up a few times uh, since the COVID-19 pandemic sort of all started. And that's this word around this super spreader. So this term for a person who's infected with COVID-19 and passes it along to a lot of other people, many, many more than one would expect um, to pass it along to. You've probably heard about some of these super spreader events. So there was a choir in Washington um, in the US. And that was one person who had COVID-19. Uh, and and this one person with the disease has now been linked to 53 members of the choir getting sick just on that night and two of those people dying. Um, wow. In a dormitory in Singapore, there was an outbreak that's now been linked to 800 cases Um 80 infections from one person who was sick at a live music venue in Japan. Um, yeah, so these are really well-documented cases. Yeah, in the early days, wasn't there like a, a church in Korea? There was, like, I think, one person who had spread things at a church in Korea. Yeah, that's right. These, yeah, super spreading situations, they're happening all over the world. Um, 
but they really give us an insight into how best to defend against COVID-19, I guess. And in fact, one study by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine are working on what is something called the dispersion factor, or as they call it, K. So you guys have heard of um, R, the R-naught factor, so um, how many people um, you will infect. Well, this dispersion factor describes how the disease clusters. And so the lower this dispersion factor, um, the more transmission comes from a small number of people. And if you've got a high dispersion factor, then you've got a lot of people who are dispersing um, dispersing the disease. So, for example, it was published that uh, SARS, uh, in which super spreading played a major role, it had a um, dispersion factor or K of 0.16, and MERS, uh, which emerged in 2020 which emerged in 2012, had a dispersion factor of around 0.25. Mm. Um, as sort of comparison, the flu pandemic in 1918 had a dispersion factor of about one. So clusters, big, you know, super spreading clusters did not play such a role in the flu pandemic in 1918. So for COVID-19 re researchers, um, who were working on this, one of one of the researchers, Adam Kuchowski of the London School of Health and Tropical Medicine, estimates that the dispersion factor for COVID-19 could be as low as 0 0.1. Um, and he suggests that about 10% of cases leads to about 80% of the spread. Oh, wow. Yeah, which suggests that these super spreaders have um, a huge role in in where the disease goes and how we can then manage it, right? Um, so at the moment, yeah, researchers are working out the why, but it looks like some people shed far more virus and for a longer period of time than others because of differences in their immune system or differences and distribution of virus receptors in their body, um, but they're still just, I guess, trying to work that out. Um, and some people breathe out more particles than others, which is interesting. Um, also interesting, especially when you take into account this choir story, singing may release more virus than speaking. And, um, and I guess sort of shouting releases more, vi more virus than speaking. And being indoors is much more dangerous than being outdoors. So one study in Japan found that the risk of infection indoors is 19 times more likely than being outdoors. So there we are. Um, I know we're heading into winter and it's very tempting to be indoors and um, have people around at your house. Um, but if you want to stop super spreaders um, with coronavirus, then remember to keep your distance, um, pack a picnic and maybe refrain from singing in large groups. So no birthday parties. <laughs> Karaoke bars also, That's bad it. things. I don't know. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yes. That's all. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that is it for another episode of Locked in Science. Locked in Science is normally recorded at the studios of 3CR. 
Um, but currently, of course, still is recorded at the homes of Claire, Stu and Chris in Melbourne. Uh, I think we're all in the lands of the Wundry people of the Kulin Nation. But regardless, Lost in Science or Locked in Science is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Now, if you are in Melbourne or anywhere else in the world and you want to support 3CR, we would love you to do so as part of our station appeal. Remember that you can just go to the 3CR website, that's 3cr.org.au, and follow the links to donate. We would also like you to get in touch with us if you feel so inclined. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We're also on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. We are on your local friendly podcast app. Uh, if you have the opportunity on such an app to give us a rating and a review, please give us a good one because then that helps us raise us up in the algorithms and other people can find our show. And you can they can be part of this wonderful Locked in Science Club. Otherwise, we're on the same time on the radio every week when Stu, Claire, and Chris get locked in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.